Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Mikhailashvili. Welcome to the All Out Coach podcast, where leaders from many different industries will inspire you to stretch yourself and lift others. They'll add energy, excitement, and character to what you do every day and what you're inspired to do in the future. Today, I'm excited because I have a first guest who's going to talk about the pharmaceutical industry which is also one of the series of my podcast. And I have an accomplished leader, an executive who has worked across big pharmaceutical companies such as Abbott, AstraZeneca, Acerta, uh, and now Bayer. He's launched products. He's helped lead global franchises of different products across the organization, as well as lead company-wide initiatives. He's scientifically commercialized these products, as he notes in his bio on LinkedIn, which we're going to talk a little bit about because of his training. His training began with a degree in biochemistry at the University of Minnesota, after which he received his MBA at DeVry University. And he didn't stop there. He received his executive degree in marketing management at the Wharton School in Pennsylvania. I worked with Stephen Lines during a time when AstraZeneca were helping launch products that were competing against the top prescribed medications globally, like Lipitor by Pfizer and Plavix. And AstraZeneca had the next generation products, Crestor and Berlinta, in which Stephen Lines had a major, major contribution. The first time that I met with, with him, and Stephen allowed me to just share this with those who listen, what impressed me as an early career MSL at that time, medical science liaison, was how he involved me, how to what degree he involved me and he trusted me with responsibilities to give me voice and to empower me to help with a company-wide initiative that stimulated drug adherence among patients. So with that introduction, Stephen, I'd like to ask you to take us through your journey. Tim, well, thank you, first off. And um, my journey has just been a mirror of the great people like you. Um, for me, it started in biochemistry as a researcher uh, on a bench, actually working as a clinical pharmacologist in a hospital at Northwestern Memorial in Chicago under the tutelage of Steve Rosen, who was the oncologist leading the charge against cancer in the early years. Um, he's provost at um, City of Hope now, but he still retains the same focus, which was patient health first. This has really been my North Star and my guiding light throughout the years, whether I worked in infectious disease, cardiology, or oncology. And in oncology, it really has been such a pleasure to make our medicines available to many more. I left research halfway through my career because I felt that I wasn't making enough impact with people's lives. And I think from a commercial perspective, knowing what I know scientifically about molecules and how to work with those in the research labs, we can do more with less. And it really is about building the future of healthcare so that it reaches everyone 
and it benefits us all. And that really, for me, has been my North Star. Whether I was at Abbott working on first-in-class protease inhibitors like ritonavir, or working with the World Health Organization in North Africa for Bedouin tribes that suffered from HIV, whether it's work with oncologists across the nation now and trying to really maximize therapies in the targeted and precision area. The underlying North Star for me is better science for more people. And that really is kind of my journey from a leadership perspective as well. Because when you have a group of similar-minded people, scientists, researchers, financiers, marketeers, advertising executives, these brands really come to life. And there's so many great examples of them that have really changed people's lives. A couple you mentioned, like Lipitor and like Plavix, which were early market entrants in the cardiovascular space, really changed life expectancy. You could have a heart attack. You could live with cholesterol and dyslipidemia issues um, where they would have maybe killed you a couple of years previously. So it's been a lot of fun. From a leadership and a journey perspective, I really have been very fortunate. And I think part of that is in having an open mindset to work with everyone on an even playing field. Yeah, what makes your story so unique, I think, is how you have combined your background and impacted so many uh, patients' lives, ultimately, through the work that you've done, combining the science and the business aspect of our industry. And that's what really was very interesting for me, and that's why I, wa I wanted to invite you to speak and uh, share your legacy with others in the industry, as well as with those who our patients as well, who are hopefully going to listen. Who are some of the mentors that have inspired you in your life? Um, in my early days, um, even, even dating back before I even started with Steve Rosen, really not, no one. Um, yes, I was a, an, an athlete, a student athlete, but even then I didn't have mentors. And my first true mentor was Dr. Rosen at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, who really shaped a lot of my aspirations about what I could do, especially if I was interested in staying in healthcare. Mm -hmm. My second biggest mentor and probably my lifelong mentor was the head of Abbott's uh, infectious disease group, Carl Kraft. He was a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. um, by trade, he was the Milwaukee Zoo's head pediatrician and brought every young animal into living, but he was also an infectious disease um, zealot, and he really developed Biaxin for all of its great indications for helping people, whether it was hospital-acquired pneumonia, uh, HIV-resistant MAC infections, but his lifelong lessons about helping people have really stuck with me my entire career. He's probably my greatest mentor, his scientific mind and his ability to create access for patients. And so it's really, really been great. I've had lots of other professional mentors, Elaine Campbell from uh, AstraZeneca, just an absolutely amazing lady. She's a chemical engineer by background training, but 
her ability to commercialize products and bring it to the masses better than anyone that I've ever worked with. And so those people have all given me something and I hope that I'm able to pay it forward because they sure did. One of the reasons why I had started this venture was to be able to give back to those who have inspired me once they hear your comments. I think that this will be one way that you can pay it for it, that I can pay for it as well. What has been your greatest accomplishment? I, I think my career as um, a whole is, um, for me, is a great accomplishment. There are a couple of really great highlights within it. Um, in the precious little time that I have outside of work and my family, um, I do volunteer for a hospital um, uh, and I work on their board in philanthropy. And um, a few years ago, we were able to assist a family whose daughter had um, really, really uh, blastic um, leukemia and was going to have a BMT. Mom and dad lost their jobs. Um, they mortgaged their house, three other kids um, in the house that had next to nothing. And we were able to buy their house back, give them legs to stand on, giving mom and dad jobs, but then also take care of their daughter's health care bill. I think in the grand realm of things, um, for me, my North Star is taking care of other people and giving back. This probably is one of the greatest accomplishments that I feel that uh, I've been part of. But I think I wouldn't be honest with you, Tim, if I didn't tell you that most of the accomplishments that I've been involved in have all been team-based, right? Getting to work with some absolute gems in the industry. Doug Levine, who was the head of GI Science for AstraZeneca yes. in the early days with Prilosec and Nexium. Um, just an absolute fantastic um, guy, a uh, fantastic doctor. I remember when we had an opportunity to win a company bonus, that we were able to take that bonus and then give it to charity. I, I just think that these outstanding accomplishments are so much better realized when you do it as a team. So um, lots of great stuff for me, but more importantly, lots of great stuff for, for teams and sharing it with others. Yes, and all our coach, I often say, be self-driven, but not self-centered, because I don't think that there's anyone in this world who's ever a self-made or self-taught person without a push, without a pull, without a platform, or without someone else. So it's always remember, it's very important to remember the who, not only on Thanksgiving, but throughout, throughout life, probably. Absolutely. Uh, stubborn, right? So thank you. As we're entering a new decade, uh, Stephen, what specific aspects of the pharmaceutical industry are you excited about transforming over the years? I think for me, we've really entered the personalized healthcare space. And there's two avenues for this. The individual patient who may have disease that is so genetically different, and then those that can be treated under the auspices of precision medicine. Um, precision medicine, a little bit different than individual personalized medicine. And in precision medicine, you know, we share probably 95% of the same human genome, but maybe that 5% is the differentiating point that makes it personalized healthcare. But for that 95% that is shared, there are precision medicine 
opportunities, not only within the industry, but also with patients that really make sense. And from that, we really enter an era of targeted therapy. And targeted therapy is really going to be the next step. We're already into the front end of it, but it is really the next step in really ensuring that we do the right things for patients and that we create medicines that make sense. It doesn't make sense to keep giving patients chemotherapy and chemotherapy and chemotherapy. It may work, but what you're doing is you're building a underlying clonal development system of different cells and cancers that can't be treated. But if we treat with targeted therapies, we have better odds of arresting the whole process and giving patients a normalized life. Yes, you mentioned um, one of those new exciting treatments, uh, track fusion and tumor agnostic therapy. Uh, which if, if those patients in whom you, you can identify who and stratify as being more genetically predisposed, you can treat any type of cancer, right? In any organ, or well, that's tumor agnostic therapy, correct? Uh, with some great effect. Yeah, results. A absolutely. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are starting to do a lot of collaborative work with diagnostic companies. I think one of my lifelong favorites has always been Genentech and even their, um, their symbol on wall street DNA is very appealing, right? They really have, they really have like driven the industry towards providing better therapies. You look at some of the early work that they did in breast cancer and in um, blood-borne cancers. Um, Rituxan, very, very, very different product. Uh, Herceptin, very, very different. These are very targeted therapies. And I think the vision that DNA created um, is one that the industry is adopting uh, more and more and more. Um, Targeted therapies, absolutely a must. And I think, you know, TREC fusions are just a small instance. It's a patient population probably of less than 2,500, but there really isn't anything beyond um, drugs that are targeted for uh, TREC fusion, which is a tumor agnostic disease, right? It can show up in probably 20, 25 different types of tumor types. But there are two therapies out there that now can really help those patients. But it's not much different from uh, a host of other diseases and a host of other therapies that are being developed today on the backbone of precision science. Yeah. Working in the medical function, um, I think that uh, I have the responsibility of helping experts and uh, cutting edge scientists Clinicians uh, identify the suitable patients, and I work in the field uh, with others who help providers, clinicians get access to that medication. So I'd like to ask you to shift gears a little bit and talk about how patients and providers can get access uh, in light of a lot of controversy, a lot of press, uh, some may be deserving, others may not of some of these increases and changes in the pricing structure. Can you talk about the, the state of uh, healthcare and in terms of patient access to these exciting medications, Stephen? Yeah, I, you know, it's a great question because um, we, as we enter a, a, a new decade and we're 
progressing fast and furious um, in healthcare, mm-hmm. there are some gaps. Um, the, the reality is um, that less than 10% of patients and their patient costs are actually medically managed and attributed to products that we sell in the pharmaceutical industry. And 90% of the burden is generally from the hospital, from in-hospital care, physician bills. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we as an industry have not done a good job in telling a good story about what that cost framework looks like. Our medicines are generally expensive. We are a for-profit industry with responsibility to shareholders and Wall Street. And those are serious obligations. Um, They give us the core backbone from a finance perspective to develop this, these molecules. And when we develop these molecules, maybe the prices are high, but our industry has been fantastic at creating opportunities for patients to get them either at no cost mm-hmm. or at a very reduced cost. And either through copay or rebate programs, or initial contracting with hospitals and clinics, we can drive cost down. We have no control over what insurance companies do and what they're gonna charge their patients, but we do take a critical eye at wholesale acquisition cost, and that conversation before a medication makes the market is discussed with the federal government. And so I would like to say that the federal government agrees with the policies that we have in place as a for-profit company Mm -hmm. for putting our products on the market. I know that in a lot of cases in patients that are indigent or Medicaid or Medicare, my company, Bayer, and previous companies like AstraZeneca and Abbott have foundation projects. They have the ability to bridge patients into therapy so that they don't have to bear the total cost. And whether they survive on those products or transition to other products, I do know that the pharmaceutical industry is not only interested in getting these products to to patients so that they survive, but we don't want them to go broke in the process. Patients have to also understand that, and I'm glad that you have voiced uh, some of the insights and some of these intricate details. So thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for those comments, uh, because I'm also extremely proud of what the, what our industry has done in terms of the research that it funds. Most of the research, in fact, is funded by the by our industry. So I, I can, Tim... Probably 20 to 30% of our bottom line goes back into Mm R&D. And without that R&D, we're not going to have a chance to correct things like drug-resistant tuberculosis or drug-resistant MAC or advanced cancers, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't continue to make money, we can't fuel the research efforts of so many great scientists that are really making cutting edge change against some of these diseases. Um, It is a fine line. I know the industry is very cognizant of cost, but once drugs leave our hands, wholesalers, pharmacies, insurance companies, they add their 
margins and profit lines on top. And where we have generics in the oncology divisions that cost dimes to make are being sold for hundreds of dollars by pharmacies, right? That is not what the generics were intended for. They were intended to bridge to an economic platform that makes sense. The problem is, is that that has been taken advantage of because it is a capitalistic environment, right? Everyone wants to have a hand in it and everyone wants to make a little bit of money. But some of these drugs that are generics have gotten completely out of control. And I think that is an area that really needs some scrutiny. Value-based healthcare and value-based purchasing. I know that uh, you have spoken to me about this and uh, there, are, there are some changes and some evolution in the pricing strategy, right, from the pharmaceutical industry's perspective. Can you talk a little bit about what that may mean in the future for us? I think this is a great subject, and the whole area is evolving. I think we, as a industry, again, want to share the risk with the providers um, who are providing care to the patients. And out of that come various strategies for sharing that risk with patients. We see in the case of some um, liquid tumor cancers, um, the ability to treat with CAR-T. And so CAR-T is administered and it's very binomial in effect. It either works or it doesn't. And companies like Novartis, they don't have patients pay for it if it doesn't work. Now the whack price of Novartis's CAR-T is pretty high, right? It's over a half a million dollars for therapy. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of money, but when it works, it works. When it doesn't, it doesn't. And so I love the idea that Novartis is sharing the risk with patients. Yeah. This is a great example of value-based healthcare. It may not be able to be written into every single contract, but you can imagine doing an adherence contract, right? Especially in like dyslipidemia or areas of cardiology where patients really have the say in what they do with their medication. And if they're adherent and they treat their disease and they keep it under control and they don't have continued healthcare costs, why not make it cheaper for them, right? Okay. So just a couple of ideas. Are there any lessons learned from previous contracts with the United States government, these shared risk contracts, any successes or failures? Oh, well, I think, I think there's a lot. I think they get buried very quickly um, because they're not great stories. But I, I know that um, we did a little bit of work with CMS um, around um, cardiology adherence. And um, it was not a good story because we... We know now that uh, adherence is really a gene chip in individuals, and you either are going to be taking your medication or you're not, and there really is no, <laughs> no good equation. As much as we like to think that by giving money to patients and providers to help them with the problem, that is not a cure for adherence. You're either going to take your medication or you're not. 
I, being a pharmacist, having a pharmacy training myself, I appreciate that. In particularly, uh, it's not easy to adhere to therapy. So I don't know what chip that is, what genetic chip that is. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, dif it's a difficult equation, and it really is based on the value of your life and. I think mostly the people around you that are going to coach you into taking care of yourself and making sure that you stay on therapy. Again, um, when we look at healthcare, the effect of the team provider, uh, including the physician and the pharmacist and the nurse, everyone that is around that patient, if they're supporting them in making good decisions about their health, they generally make good decisions about their health and stay treated. And so I like to think that healthcare is definitely a team environment uh, where the team wins. I agree. And uh, when I interviewed Dr. Keith Ferdinand for my first podcast in my mentorship series, um, who is a cardiologist, uh, and who's authored the JNC7 Hypertension or Blood Pressure Guidelines, uh, it reminded me of those days of uh, when I was at a rotation in his clinic where he involved, he made sure to involve everyone, the patient caregivers and everyone who's, who's involved with, with patients' life from many different aspects and interview them and educate them. He had a one room dedicated in the clinic where, which did not generate any revenue, where the patient would learn about what it would mean to take that therapy, what disease state they, what, you know, what condition they, they had. I, I've seen it myself. I've witnessed it, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, is there a way that the United States healthcare system can learn from other countries in their uh, healthcare systems? Absolutely. I think, we, I think we would be tremendously ignorant if we were to say that the rest of the world doesn't know how to practice medicine. In fact, if you look, um, you may want to have certain procedures done outside of the United States. Um, you know, other countries allow different types of products, and Germany is probably one of the best, like, spinal reconstruction um, countries in the world to really have it done because they allow a lot of different, like, matrixed materials to be used, whereas we have a little bit of a more conservative agency that really doesn't want to see that. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to have the best prostate procedure, you can probably go to Thailand and get a two-week vacation, and the bill with the vacation is going to be a little bit less than what you're going to probably absorb in the United States. But I don't think that we should give up on our model. Um, I think healthcare in the United States is by far, in general, the best for the most. And whether we have um, Obamacare, whether we have no Obamacare, and we have a version that is much different, time will only tell. But I do know that our House and Senate are predicated on providing the best for the masses, right? And I think there are some lessons learned that we can take from other places. The Japanese do it very differently. Canada does it differently. Mexico does it differently. Uh, even, even agencies like NICE in England that are responsible for new products to market, you know, they have some very, very realistic objectives. They want to see a 20% increase in efficacy products in order for you to have a new claim within that market. I don't think that's such a tall order. Um, I think what gets lost, though, are some of the novel differences. And so with strengths from other markets, there are also weaknesses that need to be balanced. 
But I do believe that we have the brightest and the best in the United States, not only working in drug research in pharmaceutical companies and biotech, but I also think the same of our hospitals and our healthcare system. Again, I go back to my mentors and where they started. I still have one who is at City of Hope, and he is probably one of the brightest oncologists in the world, right? And the level of care that he gives to his patients and asks of his teams for each patient, it's incredible. Um, but if I had something wrong with me, I, I know where I'm going, right? Uh, Mayo Clinic has a really special place in my heart. Um, I think the people there are just fantastic. They do a wonderful job. Um, and I don't think you can beat it. We know that there are a lot of people that come from outside of the United States to go to Mayo Clinic. Yeah. And it's not just for oncology, right? It's for a host of all kinds of problems. What a fantastic institution. And I've had the privilege of working across most of them in the United States with some real leaders in science and medicine who are dedicated to changing the patient experience. I have family members and uh, close friends who owe their life to coming to the United States based on the procedure and the quality of care they have received here. So I can completely understand your comments. I want to talk a little bit about the MSL function and what we can do in field medical because of the network that I have. A lot of MSLs may listen to this uh, discussion that you and I are having. So in light of these changes in the healthcare policy, what can the MSLs do to help support the other parts of the organization? Because that's really what I'm focused on in, at this stage of my career as well. So first off, um, field medical is probably one of the most important uh, aspects of a pharmaceutical company. You guys really are the forward-facing uh, edge of the organization from a science perspective. And it really is the science that we're trying to marry with the medical need. Um, the ability to extract and work with customers and customer knowledge um, really is um, your forte. Um, it's a little bit different than what the commercial organizations are asked to do. Um, having served um, four years at AstraZeneca in the MSL ranks inside the organization, I can tell you what we were able to do was simply fantastic. I specifically worked on drug adherence with the medical group and really trying to formulate the right decisions that we could take forward and then commercialize. But without your partnership, Tim, and the MSL partnership, the commercial organization doesn't move forward. We can go and sell, but if there is no scientific rationale and we're not able to develop additional clinical trials and move the science forward without your help and the MSL help, um, the industry grinds to a halt. And I like to think, again, the team really wins at the end of the day, and all of the closely integrated MSL and medical teams that I've worked with from a commercial perspective have always launched great products, had great experiences, and have been able to commercialize products across many boundaries, providing healthcare for the masses. And you guys really are the scientists that drive a lot of it. And I, I, I can't say thank you enough 
for what you guys bring to the table with our customers because there's a lot of things that we can't talk about on the commercial side. We are somewhat like the drums who provide that background beat to one song of science at a time and making music and medicine that if you listen intently enough to the song, you hear it and we identify the gaps, the treatments, and we partner with the field commercial colleagues who are the vocals, who provide the vocals to them that are at the front stage representing the company. And a lot of uh, the relationships that I've formed over the years, I owe to the inspiration I had from, from that partnership with, with commercial. You're glad to hear that from you. I, yeah, I think, you know, I, and I think about our relationship, right? I, I think um, it really, really did blossom when we put down the walls and really thought about what we could do collectively. I, I, I still stay in touch with Brian Katona um, at AstraZeneca because of the working relationship that we had. It was absolutely fantastic. And so many others in the industry that I still stay in touch with that are, at the end of the day, some of the best scientists and biggest patient advocates. I work with a young lady in Kansas City right now, Amanda Dries, who is probably one of the best oncology pharmacists that have, there has been. She worked at KU's pediatric oncology group. For a long time, uh, worked at CVS, right? Like she really gets it. She's a patient advocate, but her scientific mind is just so beautiful, and her customers love her for it. Going back a little bit to our earlier discussions, uh, Stephen, um, on leadership. You know, healthcare policy is mandated by our leadership, of course. Uh, it's a delicate question, but there was one question that I had received when I was certified by MIT on leading organizational change. And the question that the professors asked the students, the 90 students who are global CEOs, leaders within their own respective industries, yep. was, are we expecting too much from our leaders? We're expecting them to have their intellectual capacity, operational, uh, interpersonal skills as well. Are, are we expecting too much from our leaders what, what is your opinion? No, I don't think so. And I think what we should expect is that that leadership journey mm -hmm. should be translated to the masses, right? It's not just our leaders. Again, um, getting everyone on the bus and going that direction, it's it really, at the end of the day, what, what gets driven is an unbelievable story. And I refer to these as dream teams. I think I've been lucky enough to be on a couple of dream teams and really know what good looks like, but it all starts with the leadership, right? It's not about bullying everyone onto the bus. It's about leading everyone, being far enough in front to see the obstacles, but yet waiting at the obstacle and pulling people over the obstacle. For me, my, my journey was just pushing everyone from the back in the beginning of my career, and that ended quite disastrously. But I think when I learned to pull everyone over and with me and run faster, then that's when we started to see real results. And I think the greatest leaders, they do that naturally. But I think we should expect that of leadership. We should coach to that leadership. And we should impart that education to those that want to be leaders. Not everyone wants to be a leader. There's lots of people that just want to follow and have a comfortable life. But as a leader, you take risk. Sometimes you fail, but you learn from those mistakes 
and you use them to your advantage. And I think we should expect that of our leaders. Give them the rope to learn, but at the end of the day, I think we need to expect a lot from our leaders. Thank you. For some reason, I expected you to, uh, to give that perspective, Stephen, the stre- stretching ourselves farther and lifting others and th- this philosophy that you and I, I think, share. I recently gave a Next Generation Leadership lecture at Rutgers University. And hearing you speak about obstacles was something that resonated now with me because I tried to simplify leadership. And uh, one of my first points that I made to this class where I had sat in those same seats 15 years ago uh, was that leadership is somewhat like a GPS. The GPS that helps you avoid traffic, avoid danger. But leading is taking someone somewhere to a destination, giving, giving your team one direction, but not holding them accountable to one dimension because of that beauty from the diversity of the experiences and the universes from which they come. I'm glad that you were able to build such great teams and this collaborative spirit, which, uh, which is also a focus of mine now, because I think it's central. It's a catalyst to productivity, to growth long-term, not just as an episode. Yeah, you know, most humans are designed to follow their behaviors. What I like to think is I get to work with people that think about their behaviors first before they enact upon them. And that thinking component Mm -hmm. removes a lot of barriers, right? Mm -hmm. Stop, slow down, take a breath, look at your problem, and really create solutions for them before you start down the road. You know, I love the night commercial that says, just do it. But if you don't think before you just do it, You you could be repeating lots of mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. Be a leader. Share the knowledge with those that are behind us, right? People shared it with me. They showed me the road. They paid it forward. And I think that's part of our leadership journey is to pay it forward and to really think smart. Absolutely. You've, you've hired a lot of teams. You've built many teams. So to what extent did you apply the scientific method uh, to hiring? I want to ask you that question, being a scientist. Yeah. So um, everything revolves off a genetic Punnett square, right? True, 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 false, false, true, false, false, right? And when you look at ability, it will fall into one of those categories, right? There are people that are learners. And for our industry, we should really be hiring off of people that are learners, that wanna learn the science, they wanna learn the future, they wanna be able to combat disease, whether it's through precision medicine or creating opportunity in the value-based healthcare models that are coming. It's all about learning and thinking. And so I think our industry has done a good job of hiring learners, but I think we can go the extra mile and really focus on those that are intellectually adapt for this. I think also we want to hire people that are compassionate um, and not only um, live with love, but also want to share it with others and do it in such a constructive way that it makes sense. There's a little bit of intellectual in exercise behind it, but it really is driving your EQ, your emotional quotient to help you make better decisions, 
and help others make better decisions. Don't panic in the moment. Take that breath and help someone the right way, right? Um, And then obviously for me, I love those that are tenacious, that are almost junkyard dogs and are going to get hold of your pant leg and are not going to let go, right? They see the vision. They want the vision to come true and they're willing to give it 150%. Those people you can never replace. Those are the ones that'll get it done in any circumstance and under any conditions. And sometimes we live those dreams. Um, So for me, really three biggies, learning, managing the emotional quotient, and really having the resilience, the personal resilience to deal with life because life can be unfair sometimes. What I found interesting about those comments, Stephen, also, is that you look for learners and for scientists, regardless of their background, it seems like, right? Even in commercial, being that you've, you've hired so many different types of people and employees with various backgrounds. So would, would that be a fair statement that you, you look for that scientist in, in every employee? Yeah, and so I I can give you a great example of that. I'm pretty biased on hiring nurses in field sales and oncology. Um, One, they're respected um, in their clinics. Two, for those that have maintained their licenses, they've done it because they love the patient and they love their colleagues in the hospital. And they also come with a pretty hefty scientific background as well. Um, outside of that, researchers and a few others are still some of my favorites to deal with. I have a number of master level uh, scientists, even on my commercial teams, that I just love every day. Um, but it is the exceptional thinker that I think I'm really attracted to. And I have some folks that got their psychology degree, but what they have done with their life after that, not from a educational perspective but from a learning perspective has been pretty awesome they're probably some of the smartest people um, that i've worked with i I work with a young man in indiana uh, david hutchins and um, he simply is one of the best tki scientists out there he doesn't have any degrees behind that but he went out and he bought 11 books all on TKI science. And he can tell you more about the TKI kinome effect of drugs than probably anyone else. Very, very exceptional human being. You know, that scientific mindset is one where you continuously ask questions like you, like you mentioned, right? And where you're never categorical or you never jump to conclusions, but you keep testing hypotheses. And I think it lends to a, a particular mindset that anyone can have, including sales reps, entry-level sales reps, or those who are very seasoned, if they continue to be scientists in how they behave, then they will have impact on, on others in an organization. That's my hypothesis. And in, in this hypothesis, I think that even a janitor will look for uh, better detergents, more quality detergents to clean the offices of a company. In the same way that a sports athlete continues to drive themselves, continues to try to break personal records, be tenacious, as you mentioned, and, but, but, and compete, but compete against themselves. And then when they compete with others, they compete with what's called the sportsmanlike conduct, which is sort of like air, this professionalism that the many people may be boring, but it's, 
it's it's the engine that makes the collaboration work across across companies and that's why i think that regardless of your profession your background your training having that sports and science mindset lends to a growth a progressive company culture i i would subscribe to your hypothesis as a matter of fact i mean having grown up as an athlete um, as a young kid and well into my 20s um, it shaped my competitive instincts, right? So mm-hmm. not necessarily winning, but just the pursuit of excellence. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've taken into my life, right? I just wasn't done with a degree in biochemistry. I think the combination of that competitiveness with wanting to do the right thing has really kind of given me my North Star um, mm-hmm. and really helped me get where I am today. Yeah. And Stephen, I'm sure you remember the slogan we had, which was a, an important direction, I think, that AstraZeneca gave during my time there and during our time uh, when we crossed our paths, uh, which was winning the right way. You know, and in that one phrase, I think it just provided a direction for all employees in terms of integrity, professionalism, and, and how we wanted to differentiate ourselves. Um, yep, I think I think I think integrity has really taken a hit on the chin across a lot of industries. And at AstraZeneca, winning the right way really put balance back into the equation. You know, we could have cut lots of corners. We could have done some stuff that maybe was a little unscrupulous, but we didn't. Um, and you know, when Pascal came on board. Um, at AstraZeneca, this is 10, 12 years ago now, the company was in trouble. They didn't have a lot in the pipeline across the board. And it would have been very easy for him to make some unscrupulous decisions. But you know what? He wanted to win the right way. And I think Pascal Soriot did it exactly the way that it should have been done, right? It yeah. took lot, a lot longer than Wall Street wanted it. But if you look at the portfolio of products and you look at the direction that this company is now going, AstraZeneca has come around the corner and it is a great story in itself. But that's winning the right way. It doesn't happen overnight. And that's where you've got to have the gumption and the stick to itness of winning the right way. So I, 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 th- I think, Tim, it's, it's a great example of exactly what you're talking about. As our character is a spectrum, it's a colorful spectrum, different parts of which we express in different environments with different people, yet a specific slogan which drives you towards a particular action like that, like winning the right way, is something that sticks in my mind to this day. Company culture is something that I'm also speaking and interviewing a lot of leaders like you. So, okay. I, I think as we grow in the industry, you know, I, I love the science, but a, a lot of what I do nowadays is balanced on the human spirit and really working with people to understand what drives them and what really will progress them into the future. Um, there's two things I'm going to reference here. When you're trying to change an organization, it's a little more difficult. And right now at Bayer, we're trying to do it. We're using the backbone of Oz. Uh, which I think is really great because in the Oz pyramid, it all starts with the experience that we're trying to create, which then leads to belief, which then leads to actions, which then leads to results. And if you're trying to change the results at the end of the day, 
if you start at the bottom of the pyramid by changing the experience, the whole architecture of culture moves. And I think it's a great example of what an organization can do. We are in the middle of it. I think it'll take another year. But our leader, Sebastian, in the United States, took us on a journey last year to really walk through the principles of Oz and why it was so important for Bear to change. And I think we're there. In fact, we have a 5-1-85 goal, and 85% on the back end of the equation is dedicated to employee engagement. It's really, really important. There's a book that I read recently called The Manager. It's by Gallup. And the very first part of the book deals with the managerial operational execution um, that has not changed over the last 50 years. If you look back over who and what is happening in our industry if we elect to ignore the millennials and we elect to ignore generation Y, X, Z, you name it, whoever they are, um, we will lose them and they will become disenfranchised and disinterested in our industry. And that would really be a shame. I think at the end of the day, that book is a great read because we've got to get away from calibrating people against each other and start working with them on their engagement. So I think there has to be fundamental change. I am super excited from a cultural perspective that Bayer wants to do this. They are a very big company. They could elect to just drive the machinery like they have, but they know in order to be successful in the future, we have to have at minimum 85% of our employees engaged every day in what we're doing, what their colleagues are doing, and what the company is trying to accomplish. It is a fantastic organization that is dedicated to using science to change the world, to feed more people, to help more people with disease, and a lot of other things. And I think the only way that we do that is by culturally changing so that we can be a lot more engaged. So two books, Oz Principle, and the manager by Gallup. Excellent if you're trying to change culture. Absolutely. I made a note. We will explore it uh, with, with my team and with my mentees as well and uh, those who mentor me as well. Knowing you, I know that those comments, being an established and a recognized leader in this industry, are absolutely sincere. And uh, it's, it, I think it helps when a leader of, of your magnitude uh, subscribes to that very important company-wide initiative, I think. I think that employee engagement is so timely also if you consider the impact of social media on our life. Uh, because yes, the millennials use it more. A lot of the older generation is now having to catch up and use it. But there's so many different ways to communicate with each other. They they, don't, they can't provide the time, that, that attention and the recognition that everyone uh, is looking for. And uh, one, one pyramid of, of my own that I've come up with at All Out Coach that I want to get your thoughts on, another hypothesis, Stephen, <laughs> uh, is uh, a collaboration pyramid. 
which starts with a statement, I can work with this person, meaning that you can enter into a dialogue. So having that basic foundation for collaboration. Then you have the next one, which is I can learn from this, from this individual. And you could argue that that also is a base, but without a dialogue, you'll probably never find out whether or not you can learn. But chances are we learn from everyone, right? I learned from my mentee, who my first statement to him when I was volunteering for this program through Rutgers was mentor and mentee mentor relationship is lifelong. Yes, I have a one-year program with you, but I can be a resource if you so choose as well. It's a contract. So I've certainly learned from my mentee who advised me to do a podcast and he's from a different generation. So the second part of that pyramid is I can learn from this person who I work with. And then the third and the apex, probably the, uh, the peak is, uh, is I can share emotions with this, with this person because I think evoking emotions uh, and talking about those issues that truly matter that are maybe in the back of many people's minds is one of the reasons why I started this podcast being in the pharma industry, because I really believe that the pharmaceutical industry, Stephen can utilize and take advantage of this movement of this movement where there are these next generation leaders who want to be heard, who want to be recognized and who want to receive the attention. There are people with, from whom you can learn who are their experience that both you and I probably have come across in our careers, yet with whom you may not have a dialogue or you may not be as inclined to share emotions with. And that's why I think in this pyramid, this collaboration pyramid that I have built, that I'm reflecting on uh, all the experiences, all the relationships that I've built, I think that that is one goal or one direction that I'm working towards personally. Because what I'm working on is to build meaningful relationships from now until the end of my career. Try to pass that on to my children and uh, yeah. colleagues. They're, they're great goals. Um, I, I really think that you're on to something. I think, again, you know, we have the ability to work with everyone. They don't have to be our best friend. We don't have to necessarily sh- share ideology. Right. But if we can make a commitment to work with each other, and you don't like these people, the amount of knowledge that you gain from that type of interaction, I would almost subscribe is double um, because you're always trying to learn. Um, And I think learning is really the key here. It's the same in the Oz principle, right? If you're unwilling to learn, you can never change the experience. So I'd like to think that we can draw parallels between models, but I would definitely subscribe to what you're talking about in collaboration. It's really, really important. And again, I think that if you change the base, you can change the entire model and slide it. So I, I, would, I, I would say yes, Tim. Absolutely. Great. What is one routine that works for you that you have applied that you would love to share with those who are going to listen to this episode? So I think you want to take the time to understand whatever problem or opportunity is given to you. I think you want to take the time to really think and use your brains. You have a large organ between your ears that for the most part over the course of your life you've ignored. For those that have used it, (laughs) they are already retired and living somewhere beautiful on a beach having a corona right now. 
But for those of us that have woken up halfway through our career, <laughs> and I'll put my hand up for that one, um, we want to be able to use the tools that we're given. We're wanting to continually read, continually explore, and do a better job. And I think if you subscribe to just stopping and thinking about what you're doing and trying to accomplish, it is an amazing journey. Um, be open-minded. Um, there is a great, another great book out there called Mindset that asks us to work with an open mindset and not be closed off to either ideas or people. You might be quite amazed what people bring to you when you have an open mindset. Solutions that are faster, cheaper, and just flat out outright better, right? Listen, your, your second big part of your pyramid is listening, right? And learning. Um, and we can learn from everyone. So have an open mindset. I think it's critical. And your open mindset was really what I remembered and how I introduced you at the beginning of this episode when we first sat down over lunch uh, that stuck in my memory. And I'm glad that we're able to continue our dialogue, uh, Stephen. Yeah. I want people to also get a, to know you a little bit from a personal perspective. So what is one escape or one activity that in which you lose yourself in your, on your personal time that you'd like to share? So for me, um, in my, in my personal life, um, I think it really is anything outdoors. Um, obviously as a scientist, there is a connection to the biology of the planet. Um, and whether I'm hunting, fishing, scuba diving, skiing, hiking, mountain climbing, the one core is that you're in the most incredible environments on this planet. Um, the science behind it um, creates wonder. Um, whether you're looking at snowflakes that are coming down on the top of a 15,000 foot mountain, or you're in the depths of an ocean and you're looking at these really cool uh, dragon moray eels. Um, whatever it is, this planet has some pretty incredible stories to tell. And I think for me, I get absorbed and lost in nature. And I think for me, whatever the activity that surrounds nature, I, I'm in, I'm loving it. I'm outdoors, um, just enjoying it. And so we all got to pick our passions. Some, it, for some, it may be music and an orchestra. Yeah. For some, it, it may be very different. But for me, it definitely is being outdoors and really enjoying what Mother Nature created. She's, she's quite the scientist, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree. Time is such a luxury these days. Why not savor that moment, savor that time, and uh, maybe even try to integrate it, right, into being productive or creative? Do you find yourself integrating uh, some of the ideas into, into work from your time in, with nature? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I like to think that I have epiphanies on a regular basis. Maybe it's because I'm brain dead during the week and it just happens on the weekend. You're too but, humble. I don't um, believe that. <laughs> yeah. The epiphanies on the weekend while you're sitting on top of a mountaintop or you're relaxing by a stream, you're just, yeah. you know, 
the sub the subconscious is always at work. I do know that, and I do know know that about me. And so when I have the time to actually switch gears, I think my subconscious goes to work. And so I'm able to not only enjoy what I'm doing, but also know that in the back of my mind that I'm churning on opportunity and problems that maybe someday will help many and someday help those that are less fortunate. I want to ask you, what makes All Out Coach relevant to you? Well, All Out Coach, I think for me, the relevancy is you, Tim, because of what you bring to the table and what you are trying to do, not only from a learning perspective, but also a helping perspective with others and providing an opportunity to be better, to maybe do it differently, but most importantly, to do it the right way right? You and I come from a culture that talked a little bit about that. And I think when I look at all out coaching, I think what you're trying to contribute is so much better than a lot of what we see today in modern culture, in coaching, or in people that are in lecture series. One of my favorites is Simon Sinek. Um, He has a new book out. Um, I like to think that you and I could sit at a table with him and have a great conversation about the infinite game. So anyways, I think you're doing a great job, Tim. It's just a pleasure to um, be with you today uh, and to help with this. But um, honestly, I I think it was from the moment that uh, I was introduced to you that I knew you had greatness um, all over. Words can't describe how grateful I feel for having your time. What your words mean to me, uh, because I have a great deal of respect for you personally, professionally, Stephen. And I'm glad that you're able to provide your passion, your depth, and your energy uh, to our industry as we are entering this new decade and our industry and beyond on a very human level that I hope many will find valuable. I know, in fact, that they will find valuable when they hear this. What is one message that you'd like to leave those who will listen with or one request that you have? I would ask everyone to really think about what they're doing. And if you are really building it um, for purpose and for the future, please know that they will come. Um, we've, we've, We've tried to do this over and over for a long time, and we are getting better at building it. I think there's a lot of other things that people worry about that are just extraneous information, but trust yourself, trust in your leaders that the decisions are right and to think critically about what you're doing. Uh, With that, have a great day, Stephen. Thank you very much. I look forward to continuing the hypotheses that we'll share with each other and that we'll test and the dialogue that we've refreshed in 2020, I think. Cheers to scientific rationale. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.